Good day and welcome to the Frontline Chatter Podcast. My name is Jarian Gibson, back with our special co-host, Roy Monahan. How are you doing today, Roy? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back, Jarian. Yeah, always always great to have you on. Uh, always enjoy our, our chats together on here. And I just want to say congrats on the, the new house that you recently got here that I saw. So I hope everything's going well with the move and, and with the new house. Yeah, it's going great. Finally have our own place after over 18 years of renting. So it's definitely a welcome change at kind of a difficult time for the world. It's a little bit strange, but uh, it's a push or a step forward. So happy about it. Thanks so much. Great. Great. So let's go ahead and uh, talk about our guest today. Do you want to go ahead and, and kick things off, Rory? Sure. Yeah. So we're here today with Tobias Creedle. Tobias has one of the most interesting backgrounds of any techie you could meet. He has a PhD in astronomy and worked as an astronomer and sysadmin for over 15 years before making the jump into purely tech-related roles. If you have worked with Zen Server in particular, you've most likely heard of Tobias or read his material as he has been an authority on this hypervisor for some time. Tobias has also been on the CUGC committee since its inception and enjoyed multiple years in the elite CTP program before taking retirement from both the program and his incredible career. After such a long and fruitful career in this industry and over 40 years involved tinkering around with ever-changing technology, we thought it would be a great idea to pick Tobias's brain about all of the changes he witnessed throughout his career. So come join us under the learning tree with Tobias. Tobias, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Rory. Thank you so much uh, to you and Jarian for this invitation. It's a pleasure to be able to share some of my experiences, and I appreciate the opportunity. Well, well great. Uh, welcome, and we're good to have you on. And, you know, I've, I think our first interaction, Tobias, was actually through the, uh, the discussion forums on Citrix and, until we finally got to meet in person at, I think, a, a Synergy years ago. So happy to have you on. Thank you. That's exactly correct. I remember looking for you, um, gosh, it's probably been seven years or so ago, roughly speaking, and uh, being very delighted to finally have the opportunity to meet you in person and pick your brain a little bit. So, yes, great memories there, uh, Jarian. Thank you. So let's kind of jump into things. Um, as, as mentioned uh, in the intro, you, you actually have a PhD in astronomy. Um, and so you worked as an astronomer, you know, but also being a sysadmin. So can you kind of ex explain and tell us about that? Sure, absolutely. Starting back in the late 60s and early 1970s, there was a huge paradigm shift in astronomy where beforehand almost everything was analog in some means or the other. In other words, when you would take an image of the stars or a galaxy or whatever, you would typically use a photographic plate. And even long before CCD technology and uh, other types of detectors, people started very quickly realizing that being able to analyze data in an analog way was just not very efficient and also couldn't be quantized very well. And consequently, some of the first things that were done were the digitization of various photographic plates so that you had numbers to work with. Uh, the huge aspect of having numbers to work with is that you have then things that you can analyze in very reproducible ways and you can revisit them and so forth. In order to do that, of course, you needed computer systems. And long after the first electromechanical calculators that were uh, used extensively, uh, some of the first things used were, of course, mainframes. And then as the need to interact with data became greater, then there was a very huge move into the so-called mini-computer industry, which became affordable refrigerator-sized devices that uh, required a huge amount of power and cooling, uh, but nevertheless allowed the opportunity for 
data scientists of many types to be able to actually start analyzing data uh, and being able to do it very, very quickly and very uh, accurately. And uh, that really revolutionized, I think, a lot of the field of astronomy as well as many other sciences. And as a consequence of all that, obviously, in order to be able to do this analysis, you had to start learning how to use computer systems. Uh, this is uh, something that, of course, now is self-understood as a fundamental part of being a scientist. But back then, it was sort of like, you know, which direction do you really want to go? And to me, having already been intrigued with computers for quite some time before that, uh, I saw it as a golden opportunity to really get into something that looked like it was going to be very, very exciting, and very, very useful. So that kind of led you down the path of, of getting into IT and becoming an IT guy and kind of pushing things to that way of your career? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was involved in astronomy uh, as an astronomer and, of course, doing a lot of data processing for somewhat over 15 years. One of the interesting things that happens as you fellows know as well as anyone else, uh, that many people who get into system administration uh, do not pursue that intentionally. What happens, I think, is as some people become more involved with computer systems, that they, again, naturally become more interested in the inner workings. And so when you start digging deeper, I think, into the operating systems, for whatever reason, uh, for example, wanting to optimize how a program runs, you start learning more and more about this. And back then, system administrators really didn't exist on a per uh, uh, definition basis. You know, this is something that really only evolved much, much later on because Again, as I mentioned earlier, primarily you worked with mainframe computers or many computers. And so you kind of had to learn how to deal with all of the various aspects of it. And so um, accidentally in some ways, some of us, I think, developed the interest to learn how to do the system administration, which you know, became a secondary skill that ultimately helped me make the transition from my first vocation in astronomy into the IT industry. It's funny, that's, uh, I think Webster uses the term accidental Citrix admin, and it kind of sounds like your whole shift to an IT focus was accidental because that didn't even really exist as a career at the time, it was just kind of like a specialized offshoot. But obviously, you're, you've got a PhD in astronomy, and initially, you spend years working in this role as an astronomer. Um, is it a case that you lost some of your passion for the astronomy side of things, or you just saw this really cool opportunity, and you discovered a passion for the, the tech side of things? Like, what is it that made you um, go down the path more specifically around um, the actual IT and tech side of things? First of all, you're absolutely right about Carl Webster. Yes, the accidental discipline is, is definitely uh, true for very many people. Um, as to your question about career change, honestly, a lot of it had to do with the increasing difficulty at that time of getting funding for research. I think there was a huge influx of people studying astronomy at the time because there was so much going on that was just absolutely fascinating. Um, one of the greatest rewards I think that I had personally was the opportunity to work for roughly 10 years as uh, part of the team that 
developed and tested and calibrated the CCD camera systems that eventually flew on Hubble Space Telescope. And so this was an extremely exciting opportunity. And, What's the uh, abbreviation CCD? You, you actually mentioned that earlier and I didn't want to sound stupid and ask. Sure, it stands for charge coupled device. And of course the CCDs at the time, um, just the chips alone cost tens of thousands of dollars. In many cases they had to be hand polished in order to bring out certain characteristics. And they were also typically because of the, the high noise levels uh, they had to be cooled down to uh, very, very low temperatures, you know, like um, minus 100 Celsius or so uh, using liquid nitrogen. And so this was not, you know, just something you could carry around in your cell phone uh, that we're so used to now and don't even think, you know, anything about. But way back then, this was an extremely new and extremely uh, sensitive and expensive technology and very, very cumbersome to use. But um, again, you know, in the following decades, of course, as the technology became better understood, uh, now it's a commodity item, but uh, very, very different, of course, from way back when. Yeah, and you're obviously saying that the, w the way technology has moved, you know, back then, like storage or memory or stuff would be like so mm -hmm. insignificant compared to what we had today. But when you initially made that jump into mm -hmm. more of a specific IT role, what are some of the technologies? I don't know. I'm sure it wasn't end user computing because that wasn't even a term until a few years ago. But what, what were some of the products and software and technologies that you worked with? in your, um, I guess, first dedicated IT role? Well, uh, again, like I said, a lot of the change in career was really economic and, you know, I had a, um, a young daughter at the time and the stability of the family, you know, took precedence. And so I made that shift um, into uh, the IT industry and specifically, um, into um, you know the academic area um, at Northern Arizona University. The first main project that I can think of is that at that time, uh, NAU had a, um, a Honeywell centralized computer system and just a couple percent of the students had any kind of an email account. And so one of the first major projects was to start building up a system that would provide basic utilities to our students, uh, including email, but of course, um, you know, IRC was a huge thing at the time. And, uh, you know, just some basic storage functionality. And hence, over the next few years, the number of students with email accounts grew from just a few percent to a hundred percent. And that was, you know, one major activity. Uh, the other thing that um, I thought was extremely exciting, which I had played a little bit with at the Institute where I was working a little bit beforehand was the World Wide Web. Um, in fact, if I back calculate when I brought up the web server at the place that we were at the time. I think it would fall roughly into the first 1,000 or so World Wide Web servers in the world. And um, that, to me, looked extremely exciting, especially looking at content delivery for education and the ability to deliver such materials in ways that were really fundamentally different from anything else that existed beforehand. And so one of the first things I pushed for was, we've got to start bringing up websites and learn this technology because it's going to play an extremely important role in content delivery and 
overall in the educational area. So let's uh, talk about some perspective here about systems, because you know, with the career you've had and the things you worked with, you mentioned the World Wide Web and and being one of the early websites and getting into websites and so forth. So let's talk about um, performance of systems, right? So just some perspective for our listeners, when you probably started out in, in your career, systems were probably around at one megabyte or, or less, you know, of memory. And then you retired early this year, um, you know, end of last year. And so with you working on like your Zen server host and, and um, in your role, what was the amount of RAM you were using at the end of your career in your systems versus the beginning of your career? You know, that's a, that's a really interesting question. The first computer I ever really used was, I think back in 1971, I persuaded my father who um, was a university professor in ceramic engineering to let me take uh, Fortran programming class as a as i said a junior in high school and so he managed to get me in and this was an ibm 360 mainframe and this of course involved you know punching cards and so on and so forth i'm not sure how much memory that thing had but the main computers that i ended up using um you know once i went into college were a central uh, control data system and then we had initially a PDP-12 from Digital Equipment Corporation. And I can't remember exactly. There were two different variations. One had 8 kilobytes and one had 16 kilobytes of memory. Not megabytes, kilobytes. And the only way you could get certain programs to fit in, I remember, was at certain times I had to actually reduce the number of letters and the variables in order to save a byte or two here or there. So this then evolved into larger uh, mini computers that typically had, like you said, you know, on the order of, you know, a megabyte or a few megabytes. Um, one of the early Sun Microsystems um, boxes we had, I believe, had eight megabytes of memory. And as things progressed, I think the latest Zen servers that um, I brought up and administered, I believe had around um, 256 gigabytes of memory. So you're talking multiple orders of magnitude over that sort of a time scale. And uh, with that, of course, not only the amount of memory, but the processor speed enabling one to do things later on that I think people only dreamed about earlier on. It's, uh, it's, it's really phenomenal and way more, I think, than many of us, at least at the time, envisioned would ever be possible. That's pretty amazing just hearing you talk about like even when companies like Digital and Sun Microsystems, and obviously Digital were acquired many years ago, um, but there've not only been changes in the technology, but also changes in the large established companies who were probably the vendors you relied on um, throughout your career. Um, but I guess more from a technology perspective, say it's hard to maybe pin down uh, certain products because so much has changed, but operating systems have been like the foundation of everything that everyone has done pretty much. Um, and I know that you're pretty well versed on Linux. Uh, can you tell us about which operating systems you have worked on and supported through your career? Have you mostly been um, Linux focused and kind of later Windows? Um, what did you start out and, and maybe transition to in terms of operating systems? Sure, Rory. It's really such a, a huge list that I actually cheated and wrote some of this down because I had to go back and really comb my brain to remember some of this. Um, starting really with, you know, as I mentioned, the IBM 360 and the control data system, 
um, which I believe was a Cyber 73. Um, it used um, an operating system called uh, NOSBY, which was network operating system batch environment. The early uh, digital equipment machines used, um, well, the PDP-12 used the dial operating system. Uh, the PDP-11s and LSI-11s ran RT-11 and uh, RSX-11M. Later on, we started using various VAX machines, uh, also from, from DEC. Um, that used uh, VMS, um, and uh, to some degree, the uh, DEC Alpha, for example, used OpenVMS. Then came Sun Microsystems machines, uh, which were you know, the first Linux-based machines that we used in earnest. Um, we played around a little bit with you know, some of the Motorola 68,000 series machines to some degree. But these early uh, Sun machines ran uh, Sun OS and then later uh, Solaris of various versions. And um, then, of course, moving on eventually into pure Linux systems that we ran at least at NU primarily under Red Hat um, were uh, you know, primarily uh, various versions of enterprise Linux as well as uh, CentOS. So yeah, quite the extensive range of machines. I think there was a little bit of, of HPUX that I had to do at one point or the other, but uh, some, of, some of those details are now a little bit uh, faded. But you can see again, you know, quite the, quite the evolution there. And, and really, to me also, um, having worked with the deck equipment for so long, the ability to get so much more power at the time with some of the early Sun Microsystems machines and a much more efficient, I think, uh, operating system, you know, that, that was, you know, Unix or Linux based, again, was a, a huge paradigm shift and sort of more forward-looking in the direction of where computing was going and not being so strongly tied to proprietary operating systems. Speaking, speaking of that, so since you went through HP and, and Sun and, and DEC and then talking about CentOS and Linux in general and Red Hat, um, so obviously, you know, you predate Microsoft before Microsoft became big and mainstream or even probably wasn't even thought about. So um, when did that get on your radar and how was that transition going from primarily Linux-based going to uh, Windows-based? I think really the first PCs that we had uh, were at Low Observatory and Interestingly enough, some of the very early usages of those were as terminals in order to, to connect to some of the centralized equipment, interestingly enough. It's uh, funny the way that people use one tool for one purpose and then later realize, oh, you know, not only can I use this as a somewhat smarter terminal, but hey, I can actually do things like word processing and spreadsheets and things along those lines. I think a lot of that was also driven, honestly, by the business office, because as you all know, many of the early computer systems very specifically targeted office production. And in a way, again, I think this was the realization of being able to take something like a PC or, or some of the early Macs um, and find other ways to use them in a, in a more efficient and more innovative way. And so the integration started, I think, relatively early on. Uh, I think when you got a hold of some of these 
uh, coprocessors, for example, like um, like the you know the eighty two eighty six had a, an eighty two eighty seven coprocessor. You could accelerate your means of doing calculations even with a simple machine enormously. Um, some of the early experiments I recall doing yielded gains of something like a factor of six or seven or so in the uh, numeric processing. And in fact, um, the whole evolution of that industry led to, in many ways, I think the demise to some degree of you know some of these huge supercomputers. I remember having spent about six weeks um, in Baltimore at the Space Telescope Science Institute for um, a while, working on a special project. I remember talking to one of those folks there who had just gotten a Spark Station 2, which was a very, very early version um, of the uh, Sun Microsystem uh, spark line. And he told me that, you know, if I run this machine 24 hours a day, um, because the time that I can get on a mainframe uh, machine is only about maybe 5% or so of the CPU time, because it's, of course, run concurrently with many, many other users. This was on a cray of some sort. He said, this is the point at which I'm actually about even with the amount of computing power that I can get on my desktop and I don't have to share it with anyone. And I think looking at that benchmark, again, you know, we had hit a point in time where the ability to bring computing on a much more localized level and a lot more personalized level with that kind of flexibility and of course you know with that obviously as graphics all improved and allowed you to manipulate images in real time again i think there was a huge shift in the ability of where the utilization of computers could then be leveraged to do amazing numbers of uh, research projects and numerical calculations. I mean, just, just really an amazing point in time, in my opinion. I think actually that, that lends itself to something that I definitely wanted to ask you about because um, I've seen you talk about it, at least at the Phoenix, Phoenix Citrix user group, um, but kind of more overall to um, your career predates at least what we know as virtualization. You talked about obviously, you know, using CPU cycles on these large systems versus today what you get to use on your own personal desktop and you get it very personalized and we have, we're spoiled with so much power on the desktops and you're able to transition using like virtualization. Like you're obviously you're well vested with uh, experience in Citrix that I think that's how both Jerry and I know you from the Citrix community. Um, but when did you maybe get your start in an end user computing space of uh, delivering those applications maybe to those different endpoints operating systems like Mac OS, like Linux, um, like Windows? And how did that, I guess, maybe shift the paradigm or change the enterprise uh, work experience in your opinion? There are quite a number of different topics all thrown in there. I'll try and address them one by one and hopefully won't leave anything important out. But if I do, please interject. I think, first of all, one of the things we learned early on with dedicated servers is that if something went wrong, first of all, typically because machines were very expensive at the time. They're still not cheap, but you really could not easily have a spare uh, that you could easily, you know, bring up to bring up those same services again. The other thing I think that 
one realized very early on is that if we needed to experiment with doing some kind of an update or implementing some new programs, we really didn't have the means to do that other than to use a production machine. And the universities, I think, in general, are you know not endowed with you know that much money that they would be so willing to say, oh well, you know, you can just have a spare machine on the side that you can play around with. And I remember talking to one of my coworkers, um, uh, Tim Bond, at the time, and he said, hey, Tobias. Um, come and take a look at this. Um, there's this interesting product called, I believe it was called Red Hat Cluster that came out. Gosh, this must have been easily 15 or more years ago. And this allows one to virtualize uh, machines running on one physical piece of hardware. And the light bulb just flashed, I think, uh, thinking, wow, this is... This is the ticket out of the issue of having to have multiple expensive machines to serve the purpose both as machines that we can do development on, as well as having additional power to provide services in the event that something went wrong. And so we played around with that for a while. It was not the greatest, most stable product, but the results I think were convincing enough that I was able to go to my boss and say, hey, this virtualization technology is going to be something extremely exciting. We then purchased some basic uh, VMware licenses that we ran, I, th I think, for about a year or two, and were very, very impressed with its performance. The main deterring factor i think at the time was uh the cost and so then um, some of our student workers and i were beginning to look around well what else is available and this ultimately became my first exposure to citrix as a company uh, since zen server at that time uh, provided free versions that had almost all of the capabilities of the commercial versions. So we, we brought that up and did a proof of concept. And I think the results were so impressive that ultimately we bought into Citrix's educational program, which allows for some fairly substantial discounts on a number of Citrix products. And hence, this, this got us going with, uh, with Zen Server initially. And then to address the other question about the end-using computing, long before this, NEU had actually been using uh, Sunray thin clients, uh, which were from Sun Microsystems. And you alluded, uh, Jarian, to the point back when uh, the Oracle Corporation bought Sun Microsystems. And one of the first things that happened is that they completely changed their licensing model such that the, the cost and support really became um, unattractive. And this in turn caused us to look into other options. And as you can imagine, the the logical step was since we had had some very good experiences with Zen Server uh, from Citrix that we then started implementing thin clients that were based on uh, uh, Dell thin clients and using Zen Desktop and Zen App, and that's how we really got very much more deeply into the desktop as well as application delivery. 
And so, uh, yeah, that's uh, interesting. You mentioned Sunray because I, I remember those. Um, I had a brief uh, time with those earlier in my, in my career. Um, and you mentioned, you know, virtualization. So that sounds like it, it, it did change the, the game for you. Um, and you mentioned specifically Zen Server. And so, you know, you shared a lot of your knowledge and the forums on Zen Server through CTP, through the community and, and so forth. So why is that something that you became particularly passionate about? Was it, you know, as you got into the EUC and application delivery during that time or, you know, what made you get really passionate about Zen Server? I think it was actually before that, uh, Jaren, even because, as I mentioned earlier, one of the, the biggest concerns that we had were providing 24-7 services. Students were already very spread out in times. I mean, some students do their best work at 3 in the morning, some of them... Um, work a lot on weekends. And one of the difficulties we encountered earlier on with individualized systems, in particular ones that, you know, delivered, um, you know, web services or whatever, is that finding appropriate times for downtime so that we could do maintenance and patching and so forth became more and more difficult. In fact, even if we you know, came in at three in the morning and finished by six in the morning, we knew that we were already impacting some of our end users who were just not able to work. Consequently, being able to provide the virtualization meant that we could continue to provide these services while some of these VMs, you know, the virtual machines were being serviced uh, without any kind of interruption whatsoever, uh, moving again towards a 24-7 shop. The other enormous aspect, in my opinion, and as a system administrator, was that, hey, I didn't have to get up at 3 in the morning to do this. I could do this at any time because none of the end users would even notice that anything was going on behind the scenes. And consequently, those were two enormously important reasons. The third reason is the scalability aspect. If you realize that you need more computing power thrown at something because the load is much greater or the usage has risen significantly, you don't have to necessarily buy a whole new piece of hardware. You can just bring up another virtualized instance and there you go, and do that very, very quickly and very cost-effectively. So that's kind of funny because, like, I'd imagine some of those benefits that you originally had by being able to leverage something like Citrix, like uh, being able to leverage this kind of larger compute in the background than you could get on your desktop, may not be as much of a selling point anymore, but it's, it's still pretty relevant too. Um, and kind of in that vein, I know that you've uh, maybe presented a lot around GPU and you also mentioned like working with some thin clients as well. Um, and I know you've demoed with Raspberry Pis and maybe they're kind of linking together of, you know, using that kind of lightweight uh, Raspberry type Raspberry Pi device is the thin client um, with kind of a beefier backend using some GPUs maybe. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what you've done with both the virtual GPU space and uh, Raspberry Pi thin clients? Oh, sure. Absolutely, Rory. The, the Raspberry Pi, uh, when it first came out, to me was was interesting and, and very exciting, not really so much initially as a thin client because they didn't really have that much capability at the time. I remember working with one of our student workers, though we, we brought up um, a standalone Raspberry Pi system that um, was running Chromium. And the reason for that is that one of the departments needed some secure data entry machines 
where nothing was stored on hard disk or anything. They just needed an interface in order to do uh, basically data entry. And that was, from what I recall, the first thing that we actually did with a Raspberry Pi. Um, later on, you know, I guess, I don't know, maybe a couple years, year or two, after the Pies were first uh, introduced, I remember seeing an article by uh, Muhammad Dawood uh, from Citrix where he had taken a Raspberry Pi and developed a very rudimentary thin client based on it. And that really caught my attention and thought, wow, if, if we can actually produce thin clients with this very, very inexpensive device and do the same things that we can with thin clients that cost many, many times as much, uh, the cost savings and um, ability to maintain and uh, support these things will be so much cheaper and so much more efficient. And so I started playing around with these things and then eventually um, I got a chance to meet uh, Chris Fleck uh, at uh, Phoenix, one of the vice presidents, and uh, he had started this much more intense project of really putting time and effort into the, uh, the Raspberry Pi um, as a thin client. And through that project, um, through, um, in fact, um, uh, Rachel Berry, uh, she actually introduced me to Evan Upton at uh, uh, the Raspberry Pi Foundation. And so I had a chance to interact with him a little bit. And sure enough, um, you know, as you all know, eventually the Pi came out a couple of years ago. I think it's been already. It might actually be three now. <laughs> Uh, as uh, a viable thin client. And seeing now, years later, it's been, what, um, five or six years, I think, since the Pi first um, was released, uh, which I believe was on February 29th. Uh, interestingly enough, I know it was a leap year, that uh, its power has grown easily by you know, an order of magnitude. And uh, there are amazing things now that uh, people are able to do with them as uh, thin clients. To address your other point about GPUs, even end-user um, thin client aspects aside, we also realized early on that the CPU power to deliver seamless graphics in particular on a lot of our applications that our students used, you know, on systems like, um, like ZenApp or RDS, were just overloading our servers. They just did not have the CPU power to be able to deliver the performance. And consequently, um, again, at one of the Synergy conferences, um, I remember the, the very early um, NVIDIA uh, GPUs, the K1 uh, initially was introduced, and I saw a demo, and I was just totally blown away, you know, thinking, oh my gosh, you can do this in real time, you can share this GPU among numerous different users, and uh, I went back from that conference and you know, told the folks uh, back at NU what I had experienced. And my thoughts were, you know, this is, this is our ticket to be able to allow people to do things remotely that up to this point in time were really only possible using very expensive, dedicated machines within lab spaces. The flexibility and the cost savings and the accessibility were extremely exciting. And so over the last few years, um, that's exactly what we did. We implemented these 
on a number of our different servers. And uh, who would have ever guessed this, that in light of the COVID-19 situation, how incredibly important the ability to do remote computing suddenly became. And we had already put all of this in place and uh, consequently the impact at least on our student body to be able to continue to do their work uh, was really hardly affected. I think there was a little bit of ramping up that was done. This is in the time you know after I had retired, but um, all the means to deal with that were already in place and uh, being able to handle the situation under those circumstances just made me feel really good about having seen how these remote computing needs would be something that would become more and more important uh, into the future as not only students you know, want to work remotely on things, but ultimately, you know, also faculty and staff at the university, uh, they don't want to be tethered to a specific piece of hardware that sits in their office. And they want to have the flexibility and the power to do things much more efficiently and any time that they wish. So, you know, as you talk to uh, about many things that have changed over your career, you know, Raspberry Pi, GPU, Zen server, end-user computing, virtualization, even changes in hardware and performance, um, is there anything that surprisingly hasn't changed or maybe hasn't changed that much? And as I ask this, I think about that saying, as much as things change, they remain the same. So kind of want to get your, your thoughts around that. That is a very interesting question. A couple things come to mind. One is I think that programming really hasn't changed all that much. It's still a process that people have to go through just like learning any kind of a language, you know, be it a spoken language or a computing language, that that process really other than some tools, of course, that you can help with debugging or optimizing code and things like that. But fundamentally, I really don't think the learning process and how people program have, have changed all that much. Sure, there are quite a number of evolutions of different programming languages, but they're all the same in that they all have grammar and syntax and various uh, rules. Uh, so that hasn't really changed, I think, at all that significantly. The other aspect, I think, which is a very important one, I think, is the human interaction aspect. I think we still need to work with each other on certain levels. The communication, the discussions, the debating of you know, which directions to go, all, all the basic ways that human beings figure out how to do their jobs, aside from you know, the various tools and other things that they have available, uh, that aspect hasn't changed. And I think an extremely important part of that involves de developing really good communication skills and having the ability to realize that the world is so complicated now that it's really, and has been for a long time, pretty impossible for any individual to master enough of everything to be completely self-sufficient. And so the ability, I think, to work together to develop great products and do good things is probably more important now than ever. And actually, as you mentioned that, like just thinking about 
what we were talking about already, like you mentioned about with the Raspberry Pi, um, you got to meet Chris Fleck and um, like Rachel Berry uh, helped to kind of get you set up with some of the Raspberry Pi work that you would end up doing um, in your organization. And then you would go on to be involved with the um, CUGC committee. You've kind of, you've had somewhat of a focus on that human element and that community element. And as you said, it's probably more important now than ever. Um, I think it's really cool too that, you know, you're kind of seeing the fruits of your labor now, even after retirement in the situation with COVID-19. That's, that's pretty cool. But um, maybe getting away from the work side of things and maybe the human side is kind of more of it, but um, is there anything in tech that was outside of your day job and outside of your career that excited you? Maybe something you did as a hobby um, or just something that's interesting to you? Oh yeah. Good, good question. Let me give one other shout out to Rachel Berry, who was the one who initially encouraged me to apply to the CTP program, which was, was also extremely rewarding, very interesting. And the, the whole community work, as you mentioned through CUGC, I think has also been, you know, extremely rewarding and, um, you know, just a chance to give back to the community as a whole. To address the tech question, honestly, the thing that probably excited me the most um, just before retirement has been the development in artificial intelligence. And that, of course, includes, you know, both AI as well as um, machine learning. And um, to some degree, of course, you can also throw in deep learning. And one of the things I started playing around with was um, with um, one of the uh, NVIDIA Nano little um, um, single board computer machines that has a built-in uh, GPU that has some amazing capabilities of you know, doing these kinds of things. The possibilities, I think, with um, AI and machine learning and the ability to use these in the real world in many different ways, including interactive works in terms of analysis and so forth. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, a whole new, you know, open world of possibilities. Uh, I find that, you know, extremely exciting. Uh, another thing that I haven't really done anything with myself, but also intrigues me is the field of chaos engineering, which I think is going to become more and more important, in particular when we see how critical it is to maintain the functionality of large and important and very complex systems. Being able to know what happens if a piece of something breaks and how to better deal with it under those circumstances, I think is extremely important. Um, as well as, of course, as we all know, the susceptibility to various types of exploits or denial of service attacks and things along those lines. And so um, it's something you know, that, that has also intrigued me. And uh, you know, while I'm not really involved in it in any level at this point in time, um, I just love you know reading about you know stuff like that. And let me just throw in also that you know I do keep up with uh, reading some of the amazing developments in the field of astronomy. It's uh, still an area that completely intrigues me and excites me and seeing not only what is going on in astronomy per se, but also in terms of the development of spacecraft and uh, rocket based uh, 
delivery systems. It's a, it's a very, very exciting time. Are, are these some of the things that you, you plan to, to do now that you're re- retired or do you have other plans for life after, you know, post working in retirement? I, I think, you know, Jarian, that just, you know, lay, laying down everything cold turkey and, you know, making a huge switch from one thing to another is probably something that's not very easy for a lot of people. Uh, I definitely intend to, you know, keep my toes in the water and, you know, continue uh, interacting with the user community and, you know, doing some research and some experimentation on my own. Aside from that, um, one of the things that my wife and I have talked about quite a bit after retirement is traveling. And unfortunately, under the current circumstances, it's not something that is that easily doable, <laughs> at least uh, not not on some of the levels that you know, we had hoped to. But that will, I think, come eventually. And, you know, that aside, um, there's no lack of other you know, activities, um, you know, I enjoy listening to and playing music. Um, um, my wife and I are involved in some um, real estate and rental ventures. And, you know, I enjoy still things like hiking and, um, you know, getting into the outdoors. Honestly, boredom has, has never been an issue. 24 hours a day just never really seems to be enough. So it's been a, a bit of an adjustment, but uh, it's really something I think that uh, you, you kind of have to grow into. And I think it's also important to do some initial planning so that you don't just make that cold turkey type of transition. That's that's awesome that you seem to be a guy who has uh, a very wide range of interests. Like you mentioned, music, astronomy, um, into the tech side. Um, you're a very personal person too, so like very easy to talk with. You've you're keeping involved with the community. Um, for someone like me, a young pup, uh, or someone <laughs> who might be listening, is there any advice that you'd give? on how to enjoy such a long and successful career in our industry like you have. Well, thank, thank you for those uh, kind words, Rory. It's, um, um, I think, uh, an interesting perspective that one gains over time. It's, it's not an easy time for a lot of people in, in many areas. Uh, both in industry and, and you know many other jobs, I I really feel for all the folks out there that are struggling under the current circumstances, and really um, you know hope that optimism will prevail and you know things will will get better. Um, there are probably, gosh, a number of things I could mention. One of the first that comes to mind, I think, is always have a plan B. You know, I didn't figure that I was going to have a career change in astronomy, and yet, under those circumstances, um, it became, you know, the logical and necessary thing to do. Um, I don't think this pandemic was anything people really anticipated, and I know a lot of folks have been hit really hard by this and had to make some major, major adjustments. And so just going through life with other options, I think, you know, um, I mean, to me, it was a blessing being able to, to get so involved with computer systems early on that, you know, I had this other skill ready to use when, when it became necessary. Um, and, and I think that's, that's one really important thing. Another thing would be 
a lot of people don't think much about the future in terms of saving for it. I think starting to save early on, build up equity, you know, in case something happens. Um, and also to, you know, to think about investing early and what, you know, the long-term goals and plans are. Um, I think that's really, really important. A lot of people, I think, really focus too much on, you know, just the day-to-day. And, you know, in all of our cases here, you know, one day, you know, you wake up and it's like, oh, <laughs> I'm on the verge of retirement here. Have I really thought about this and planned for this carefully enough? Um, another point, really, that came out earlier that you had mentioned, Jarian, is in the course of one's career, I think one of the most important things you can do is to build important connections, professional connections with others. Uh, it can be valuable in both directions, their ability to help you and your ability to help us. Um, keeping up with the technology, I think, is also important. You know, things evolve and they change very, very quickly. And having the pulse on what is new and what the next big thing is going to be and trying to be insightful into, you know, not just focusing on the status quo, but, you know, what is going to be the next big thing? You know, what, what do I need to learn in order to be able to ride this next wave? Um, and I would say the final thing is do what gives you pleasure. There's no sense in working on something that you don't really enjoy doing. Find, find something that you can be passionate about. Find something that interests you. Find something that you can do a good job with and makes you feel good about what you're doing and what you're accomplishing. That's, uh, that's very good insights there. And very good feedback, especially to those who are just getting started um, in their careers and, you know, some good perspective there just, just around a lot of things you mentioned. Um, before we close out, any additional thoughts to Tobias or Rory? Well, I just really wanted to thank you both, you know, uh, Jarian and Rory for this opportunity. Um, again, I, I really, you know, try and remain optimistic and, you know, hope that, uh, you know, things are going to, you know, continue to get better, that um, technology is going to be able to help the world, you know, get through some of these things. And, um, you know, if we all work together and, you know, keep the optimism up and help each other out, uh, this is going to be the best way to move forward. I, I completely agree. Um, I cannot agree more with that statement. Yeah, well said, Tobias. And I just wanted to add that like, I'm humbled and honored to get the opportunity to speak with you, to interview you um, after such a long and fruitful career. And I'd also like to echo that that's, you gave some really great advice and some, some of the things I'm probably guilty of overlooking myself, like investments and maybe um, being too dug into the day-to-day -day, not thinking more about the big picture. So that's some advice I need to heed myself. So I might reach out to you on a DM on Twitter to ask you some questions about that offline. So uh, expect a DM. Yeah, well, absolutely. And uh, not a problem, you know. Older folks um, usually are more than willing to share their thoughts with anyone who's willing to listen. So <laughs> thank you for, uh, for uh, you know, those words of appreciation. And, um, you know, it, it really is uh, an interesting perspective, I think, that one develops over the course of time. And, you know, as mentioned earlier, I think helping the community is, you know, very, very important. And, you know, as long as I think I can 
contribute in some way, I will continue to do that. Well, and I agree with what Roy said too about you know the day to day and perspective and, and big picture. So I also want to thank you as well for coming on and and uh, chatting with us today. Uh, I learned some more things that I, di I didn't know about you, but uh, also the rundown of how you, where you started from and how things changed. You know, because for myself, I, I think I started in the the DOS and Windows three one days. So um, you know, getting someone's perspective that's been through it, more you know talking to them instead of reading about it, I thought was very interesting and, and grateful to learn. Um, so thank you. Thank you for that. And I just want to say uh, um, congratulations on, on your retirement and, and I look forward to interacting with you more through the community. Thank you, Jari. And, and thank you as well, uh, Rory. I really greatly appreciate this opportunity and uh, it's been absolutely my pleasure. Well, thank you again, Roy, for being our special co-host. We're always here um, to have you um, work with us at Frontline Chatter Podcast. Uh, thank you to our listeners, and we'll catch you next time.